It's just one verse of scripture uh, today, uh, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Uh, I, you all know me that uh, it's very unusual for me to preach on just one single verse. But uh, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1, it, it's a verse that kind of stands on its own. It's sort of a transition verse between two different, falls in between two different sections of the book of Ecclesiastes. So the section uh, right in front of it, kind of the second half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it talks about the sinfulness of man, how mankind fell. Uh, chapter 7, verse 29 says that, you know, one of the few things that the preacher actually figured out, one thing he understood clearly was that God made man upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. And that's a very important summary in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a very uh, poignant summary of man's creation and then his uh, rebellion against God. Well, uh, then the section that comes after, chapter 8, verses 2 through 9, that's another distinct section, and it deals more with political wisdom, dealing with kings and rulers who may not be very wise or godly and who make bad decisions and give bad orders, and this could be describing virtually every political administration that any of us can remember. Uh, We'll be looking at that passage tonight. But uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it kind of bridges these two sections. You can find some loose connections uh, with the section before, the section afterwards. But I felt like we would benefit by just focusing on this one single verse uh, in more depth this morning. And so here it is, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might be changed as we look at your word. We know that your word never comes back empty. You send it forth, and it does accomplish your purpose, sometimes to encourage us, sometimes to rebuke us, but always, Lord, for our good Uh, You always have a good purpose in speaking to your people. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would speak, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Start with a question. How do you change something about yourself permanently? We all make changes for a short time, but making lasting changes is much harder Uh, I've never watched the television show The Biggest Loser. I don't know if any of you ever have. Uh, It ran on NBC for 17 seasons, I was amazed to find out. Each season was a a competition among 16 contestants, and the goal was to see who would lose the largest amount of weight over the course of 30 weeks. Contestants worked with coaches and trainers, and usually they all started out dangerously overweight, And the competition, I guess, was intended to give them some motivation to lose as much weight as they could in a relatively short period of time. And most of the time, the contestants did very well while they were on the show. They did lose a lot of weight during those 30 weeks. And so the results uh, were impressive in the short term. In the long run, however, the results were not impressive at all. 
The National Institute of Health released a study in 2016 of all the contestants from one of the earlier seasons, and they found that uh, almost all of the contestants from that season had regained their initial weight and in some cases had gained even more. So they were uh, heavier than before. And some had developed other health complications related to such a rapid rate of weight loss, uh, problems with their metabolisms and so on. So all that effort, all that sacrifice, all that hard work for those 30 weeks made no lasting change whatsoever. It's that difficult just to make a, a lasting physical change to oneself. Well, think about then how difficult it is to make other kinds of changes, personal changes, spiritual changes, emotional changes, and so on. Uh, chances are, you know, the, the personal flaws, the character flaws, the sins you are struggling with today are the same ones you were struggling with last year and the year before that and for many years before that. Uh, it can seem like you've made virtually no headway at all against them and maybe you feel like you've even lost ground, like you're worse than before. Let me just say, uh, maybe you're here today and you look at yourself and you think, yeah, I'm good. Nothing about me needs to change. Okay, if that's your perspective, then you are allowed to tune out for the rest of this sermon because I have nothing of interest to say to you. <laughs> Although, let me add that if you are inclined to think that, I would suggest that you ask for the genuine, honest opinion of the people who are closest to you, and they might have some suggestions of, you know, one or two little things that maybe it could stand a little bit of improvement about you. But anyway, I think most of us don't have any trouble uh, thinking of lots of ways that we would like to be different. And not just temporarily, but permanently different. And we're not just talking about you know, wanting to drop a few pounds. We're talking about really the, the more important, the more substantial things that we would like to change about ourselves. Like not being as inclined towards worry and anxiety, being bolder about sharing our faith, not having as short a temper and being more patient with other people when they provoke us unnecessarily, or praying more, being more spiritually disciplined, or just simply not being as self-centered as most of us typically are and we kind of know that we are. I mean, let's be honest. The large majority of our thoughts during the day are about ourselves rather than other people, right? I bet you can easily think of three, four, five things that you would like to snap your fingers and change about yourself if you could. Well, our key verse this morning, it speaks about transformation. It speaks about change. If you look at it again, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1, who is like the wise... Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. It's using the language of physical change, you know, a person's face or appearance, 
But it's really talking about an inner change, right? A, a personal transformation, one that lasts. It talks about somebody having a kind of glowing, shining face in contrast to a hard face. The hardness of his face is changed. Now, that's an interesting description there, so let's key in on that for a bit. Someone who has a hard face, what does that mean? In the Bible, there, there's, it talks at times about a kind of fierceness of appearance. Somebody who delights in being cruel, basically. In Deuteronomy 28, the Lord warns his people that if they persistently rebel against him, if they keep hardening themselves spiritually to him, keep closing themselves off to him, he says he will eventually bring a hard-faced nation against them to, uh, to try to make them see the error of their ways. Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 and 50. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. That's what hard-faced people are like. They're fierce. They enjoy being cruel. They like to see other people suffer and get put down. They don't show respect. They don't show mercy. Doesn't it seem to you that we live in a time and in a culture of hard-faced people? Doesn't it seem like there is a fierceness in the air, a lack of grace? Initially, when I was preparing the sermon, I had written in a comment that we live in a day and age when everybody wants their pound of flesh. But then I stopped and I realized that, you know, not many people know anymore where that expression came from. Some of you do. It came from Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice. There's a character by the name of Antonio. He puts up collateral for a friend's loan from a moneylender named Shylock. Shylock hates Antonio, and uh, he stipulated that the penalty for default would be a pound of Antonio's flesh. Now, Antonio wasn't really worried uh, about defaulting, so he agreed to it. Maybe he thought that Shylock was just joking about it, just a way of saying, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, I'm sure you're good for the money. But then it turns out that Antonio's own merchant ships, they're lost at sea. He doesn't have the money to make good on the loan. And that's when we learned that, no, Shylock was actually serious about the deal. He will have his pound of flesh, probably from around the region of the heart. And even when Antonio's friend steps up, offers to pay three times the amount, so a huge profit for Shylock, Shylock refuses. He keeps insisting, I want my pound of flesh. He's more interested in harming Antonio than even making lots of money. Keeps on insisting he's going to have his pound of flesh from Antonio. Now, in the end, he doesn't, but... Uh, I'm not going to give it away the ending just in case you haven't read it yet. But, you know, we use that expression, someone who wants their pound of flesh. We use that to describe someone who is merciless and just wants to harm other people. And I feel like more and more that describes the times that we live in. 
We have hard faces. I'm sure many of you have heard about what's being called our society's cancel culture, you know, where people try to shut down the people that they disagree with. They try to silence them. They try to get them fired, intimidate them, get them censored. Someone's political opinion, their opinion on social issues, it's viewed as too problematic, and so that person needs to get canceled. It's exactly the sort of thing that's done by people with hard faces who want their pound of flesh. It's harsh, it's merciless, it's relentless. At times, it's almost humorous. I I came across what has to be the most bizarre example of cancel culture this past week. Uh, It's a situation currently being reviewed by, uh, at the University of North Texas, involving, of all things, a professor of music theory. You heard that right, music theory. You know, scales, sharps, flats, key signatures, chords, that sort of thing, how they all go together. Uh, It all started because of a scholarly debate over the work of an early 20th century music theoretician by the name of Heinrich Schenker. Okay, so just for context, I went to music school as an undergraduate, and I would never have heard of Heinrich Schenker, except that in order to graduate, I had to take a seminar class in the musical theories of Heinrich Schenker. It was my last semester in college, and uh, due to some poor scheduling on my part, which we don't need to go into, the class I would normally have taken, wasn't being offered, and so the dean, who uh, happened to be teaching this seminar, he allowed me to substitute it uh, for that one. So anyway, point is, normal music students don't even know about this guy. I only knew because I'd been forced to take this one advanced seminar. So you have to live in the very, very small world of professional music theorists to even know about this guy. And then you have to belong to the even smaller and even more exclusive group of people who actually specialize in his work to think that this is interesting at all. And we're talking about a microscopic subject here. Well, so it seems that uh, one scholar published a paper in which he argued that Heinrich Schenker was a racist and that apparently his his theories about music were also racist. Schenker was actually a Jew living in Germany during the rise of the Nazi movement, so it's not all that convincing of an idea, but whatever. Uh, In response, this bona fide expert on Heinrich Schenker from the University of North Texas, he published a critique of this guy's argument in uh, one of the scholarly journals, the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, which is a thing, apparently. Pointing out the problems, pointing out the errors in the research and the argumentation, that's what scholars do. But by doing that, this professor provoked the outrage of a bunch of graduate students at the University of North Texas in his own department. And they're now calling on the administration to fire him, have him silenced, have him expelled from the academy, or in other words, to cancel him. 
But honestly, it's the first time since graduating from music school that I've ever encountered a reference to Heinrich Schenker in the media. So, I mean, I, I had to read the story. I finally got to put this class to use after all those years. Even if you haven't taken a seminar in Schenkerian musical analysis, I hope you can appreciate just how minuscule the stakes are here. This is not going to have an impact on the study of musical theory. It's definitely not going to have an impact on creating a more just and beautiful society for us all to live in. And you can see, can't you, just how ridiculously petty that is. Some people just want their pound of flesh from this guy. And that struck me as a pretty apt illustration for our culture. Whether it's the political right or the political left, you know, we're becoming quicker and quicker to take vengeance on people, to shout people down, to shut people down, to punish people who have what we think are the wrong opinions. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's uh, The Magician's Nephew from his Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene in which two characters, a young boy named Diggory, a young girl named Polly, they've been magically transported to this world called Charn, a world that is about to die. And they enter this room where they can see all these, these images of all the men and women who have ruled over that world. And it starts off well, uh, and they start, the two children, they start viewing these images from what would be the beginning of that world's history. And Lewis writes this. All the faces they could see were certainly nice. Both the men and women looked kind and wise, and they seemed to come of a handsome race. But after the children had gone a few steps down the room, they came to faces that looked a little different. These were very solemn faces. You felt like you would have to mind your P's and Q's if you ever met living people who looked like that. When they had gone a little further, they found themselves among faces they didn't like. This was about the middle of the room. The faces here looked very strong and proud and happy, but they looked cruel. A little further on, they looked crueler. Further on again, they were still cruel, but they no longer looked happy. They were even despairing faces, as if the people they belonged to had done dreadful things and also suffered dreadful things. C.S. Lewis is writing about an imaginary world, but make no mistake about it. He meant it as a lesson for ours. He says as much in The Magician's Nephew. I read about instances of cancel culture, and I sometimes feel like I'm standing in that room with Diggory and Polly, looking at these faces of people becoming more and more cruel over time. People are created in the image of God. And therefore, no one, no one should ever be canceled. No one should get treated like dirt. But honestly, that's becoming the norm in our society, to treat people like dirt. And the tools that we've created for our Internet age, they have become weaponized. The Internet, Twitter, etc., I think we're living in a time where faces are getting harder, and that affects us as well. Because the temptation is for us to develop a hard face too. 
And how else are you going to cope with what's going on around you? Turn the other cheek, that's fine. Yeah, but what if that cheek's already been beat up? What are you going to do then? Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. One thing that verse reveals is the reality that what's inside us comes out. And that's a point that Jesus made in Luke chapter 6. said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's that saying? You know, we can put on masks for a time, but we can't hide ourselves in the long run. We can't hide our true selves. Eventually, what is inside will come out. If we are hard and fierce and cruel inside, it will eventually become obvious on the outside. And it goes the other way as well. Jesus says that. He says that the good person brings out of the good treasure of his heart, he, he produces good. So the good stuff inside also comes out. And Ecclesiastes, it's getting at that idea. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. You know, the Bible does this so often, so often. It tells us that the reality of our faith, what's inside, it's going to be out there, right in the open. The Bible does not allow the Christian to over-internalize or over-spiritualize his or her faith. It says that the reality of our faith will be observable by others. And we need to be transformed inside because that's where spiritual transformation begins. But our outside is a very, very accurate indicator of what's inside us. If you have a hard face, it's surely because you have a hardness of heart that is not very gracious to other people. Or if your face shines, it's surely because your heart is growing in wisdom. People will be able to observe it. The results, they're right out there for everybody to see. And in the end, if our Christian faith doesn't make us kinder people, gentler, more loving, if it doesn't make our face shine, as it were, then there's something seriously defective with it. I mean, if it makes us more argumentative, if it makes us less concerned with people's actual lives and struggles, if it doesn't help us glow and shine with joy, then something has gone wrong. People are looking at you when, you, when they learn that you go to church. I know people are looking at me, especially when they hear that I'm a pastor, yeah, what's this guy actually like? What's this Christian woman like? She says she believes in God, but she pretty much lives like everybody else I know. She's got that fish thing on her car. Doesn't help her driving at all. 
What are we to do with the preacher's words here? Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? You know, those questions there, uh, they're implying that wisdom is rare. It's hard to find. There aren't many people who are like the wise man, who know the interpretation of a thing. Job 28, verse 12 asks, But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Same idea. Wisdom is not easy to find. Wise men and women are not easy to find. They're there, but it's a rare quality. Well, Job 28 asks, where shall wisdom be found? The place where we find transforming wisdom, it's in the wisest of all men, the embodiment of wisdom. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you want wisdom, if you want knowledge, you'll find it in the face of Jesus Christ and in the book that faithfully tells us about him in the scriptures. I'm not sure if it was the fact that I was just focusing on this one verse this last week, uh, but as I was concentrating on it, it struck me that Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1 sounds an awful lot like it's describing Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. It got me thinking about how we read Matthew chapter 17. Jesus took Peter, James, John up on a high mountain by themselves, and it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. What was inside him came out visibly. Jesus is the light of the world. (laughs) That's what's inside him. And that light came pouring out of him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they couldn't not see this. It was obvious Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. His face was transformed and it started shining just like Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1, is talking about. And that got me thinking uh, about the 20th century uh, pastor, apologist, theologian, uh, Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book called True Spirituality. And in that book, he's really just unpacking how significant the transfiguration is for us as Christians. You know, we read about it in the Gospels, and it's this kind of curious otherworldly event, and we read about it and we go, huh, that's weird, and then we move on. (laughs) But uh, Schaefer says, no, that's really an important event. He says, the Mount of Transfiguration makes it very, very plain that the supernatural world is not a long ways off. The supernatural world is not far away from us, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is not far away from us. He's very, very close. That's why they call him Emmanuel, God with us. 
I read theologians from all over Christendom, from the West, from the East, the early church, medieval church, Church of the Reformation, church today. The best theologians throughout all of Christendom agree 100% on this one thing. If you want to grow in wisdom and grace, and if you want to be permanently changed, permanently transformed to be someone better than you are right now, then the only way to do that is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ, which we actually see the most clearly at the Mount of Transfiguration. Simply by looking at him with, with unveiled faces, as it were, that changes our hard appearance it makes our faces shine because that's changing what's inside of us. That's what happens when our eyes are opened, when the veil is take, taken away and when we look to Jesus. When we see his mercy, we become more merciful. When we experience his grace, we become more gracious. When we receive his love, we become more loving. Friends, may you all be transformed as you look to Jesus. Lord knows you need it. The Lord knows I need it just as much. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. We need to keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we be transformed from glory to glory as we do so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, we know that you are doing a work in us, and at times it is uh, hard for us to see uh, what you're doing. We do grow impatient. We want to see results and change uh, quickly. And yet, Lord, we know that uh, you are surely at work uh, growing your kingdom uh, in the world around us, but also within us. And Lord, we do pray that you might help us to fix our thoughts, uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus and on his glory. May we see his face and may we be changed by that. Lord, we pray for your sustaining and transforming grace as we seek to follow him in this world. We pray this in his name. Amen.